This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to Cambridge Assessment Network Seminar. It's great to see so many of you here. I'm Jill Grimshaw. I'm part of the team that organises um, these seminars. Um, and this is um, one in our series of uh, current issues in assessment. And it's open to Cambridge Assessment staff and to visitors. So I'd like to say very welcome to you all, whether you've just walked around the corner from Hills Road or whether you've come from further afield. Um, so you're all very welcome. Good to see you. So I'm really pleased to introduce uh, Dr Aisha Ahmed. Um, some of you will know Aisha because she used to work here as a researcher a few years ago. Um, Aisha's got a degree in psychology and philosophy from the University of Warwick and she's got a PhD in cognitive development from the University of Sussex. Um, and she's now an independent consultant. She set up um, a, a, a company with Alistair Pollitt um, called CAM Exam in 2007. Um, Aisha's recent research is on improving the quality of GCSE assessment and something called the support model, which is an alternative model of assessment. And you have to ask her about that, because I don't know exactly what that's about. She's got a particular interest in ways of controlling demands and in reducing construct irrelevant variance. And if you want to know a bit more about that, she'll explain that to you as well, I should think. So Aisha lives in Cambridge, and we're very pleased she's agreed to talk to us today about this. How can we improve the quality of marking in our examinations? And what does it mean for validity? Okay, so, Aisha. Thank you, Jill. So, um, as Jill said, I'm going to talk about how we we can improve the quality of marking in our exams and what this means for validity. So, I'll start with validity. Cronbach said, The test developer and the test user seek to understand why some persons score high and some score low. And what we hope is that the answer will be in terms of what we want to be measuring, what the test was intended to measure. And that's really what I mean by construct validity. Um, Probably the most cited definition of construct validity is Messick's 1989 definition. He said it's the degree to which empirical evidence and theoretical rationales support the adequacy and appropriateness of inferences and actions based on test scores and other modes of assessment. So it's about the inferences and actions based on the test scores, not about the test itself. And this led directly to the definition in the Standards for Educational and Psychological Testing. Validity refers to the degree to which evidence and theory support the interpretations of test scores entailed by proposed uses of tests. So again, this focuses on the interpretations and the uses of the test scores, not on the test itself. And what many people working in the field of validity argue is that a test cannot be valid. You cannot say, this is a valid test, this is a valid assessment, because validity does not reside in the test. It resides only in the uses and the interpretations of the scores. Now, this might be sound logic. However, what it does is it it seems to absolve test developers and those writing the questions and mark schemes of any responsibility for construct validity. And as the famous psychologist and pragmatist William James said, what, in short, is the truth's cash value in experiential terms? So I want to say that we 
It may not make logical sense to talk about a valid assessment, but that we need to do this in order to be able to think about the impact of our questions and mark schemes on the ability of the assessment to measure what we intend to measure. Others do argue that validity does reside in the definition of the test in the development phase, um, and particularly um, Ms Levy argues um, that the design of the assessment from the start is crucial for construct validity, but that this design includes the intended use. And Anastasi, although she agrees that you can't call a test high or low, say it has high or low validity in the abstract, you can with respect to its intended use. And thus validity is built into the test from the outset rather than being limited to the last stages of test development. So if we can agree for the sake of pragmatics then that a test when we conceptualise it from the start can have validity then what are the threats to validity? What are the, th the things that are going to cause us to lose validity along the way during the process of test development? And they are basically two, th two main threats to construct validity um, in, in the test itself. One is construct underrepresentation, and the other, which I'll talk mostly about, is construct irrelevant variance. So that is... Anything that's causing the students' minds to be doing something other than what we're trying to measure. So it's about their cognitive processes. So if we assume that we've got validity from the start because we've thought very carefully about conceptualising our test and what we want it to measure, then what can happen along the way? And I'm just going to use a metaphor called the Bucket Brigade to show you. So suppose Y is a house on fire and X is a pond full of water, what we want to do is put out the fire. And how do we do this? So this is the bucket brigade, then. We start with filling up the bucket at the well. So that's the beginning. That's when you're conceptualising the test. That's when you put the validity in. Then you pass the bucket along the chain. And as you pass it along, water starts to splash out but you try to preserve as much as possible so that when you throw it on the fire, you've got enough left to put out the fire. And that's the use. If there's no water left or no validity, then how can it be used at all? So I, this is the model that, I, uh, that Alistair Pollitt and I developed and that we, we often talk about this water metaphor. But while I was thinking about this talk, I decided that actually, rather than thinking about validity splashing out, I might start to think instead about construct irrelevant variants coming in during the process. So I changed the metaphor slightly. Um, oh, so I've skipped. I forgot to say this is our assessment professional trying to keep as much bucket in the water as as much water in the bucket as possible, given all the constraints, the constraints of the bumpy ground and having to go fast and and that kind of thing. Um, and for us, the constraints are all the things we have to do in the test development process such as conceive of the tasks, write questions to communicate the tasks, write mark schemes that credit the right sort of evidence, communicate to the markers and so on. So those are our constraints. So as I was saying, I changed the metaphor a little bit to think about starting off with a pure, clear mountain spring of water and picking up construct irrelevant variants along the way as the, as the stream flows down to the sea and ending up with 
polluted water. So that's quite depressing. So now I'm going to talk about how we can avoid that. There are lots of ways of avoiding it, some to do with question writing, some to do with marking, but I'm going to argue that when you're thinking about question writing, you need to think about marking as well at the same time. And what I'm going to focus on mostly today is is the marking. So let's look at what happens when a marker awards a mark. There are three people involved, the candidate, the marker and the question setter. So when a marker awards a mark, the marker evaluates the marker's interpretation of the candidate's expression of the candidate's answer to the candidate's interpretation of the setter's expression of the setter's task using the marker's interpretation of the setter's expression of the setter's demands. This bit down here, the marker's interpretation of the setter's expression of the setter's demands, that's the marker using the mark scheme that the question setter has written. And that's the bit I'm going to focus on for most of today. So what this illustrates is testing is a highly communicative activity and that there are many points at which communication can break down and all of these represent a threat to construct validity. If the communication breaks down, then we're not in control of what's happening in the students' minds and we can't measure them fairly. So in a a moment, I'll I'll, I'll show you some examples um, of mark schemes and they're mainly from a study that um, I worked on a couple of years ago with Alistair Pollitt, Joanne Baird, um, Jim Tonnellini and, and Michelle Davidson. And we were working for QCA looking at the quality of GCSE assessment. And we looked at about 2,000 questions and mark schemes from three different subjects, D, D&T, Geography and Business Studies. And one of the main conclusions we came up with was this. As a priority, training in how to write mark schemes will probably lead to more immediate improvement in exam validity than will any other measure. So... What is the job of a mark scheme? The job of a mark scheme is to convert a performance into marks in a way that is consistent with the construct and so optimises validity, valid interpretation of the results. The mark scheme must reward construct-relevant demands and not reward construct-irrelevant ones. Those who are better at it, the construct, must get more credit. So what do we mean by demands? It's crucial to get the task demands right and to convey these clearly in the question. If we get the demands right, the question will elicit the evidence of the trait of the construct of what we're trying to measure. The question, the job of the question is simply to communicate the task demands as clearly as possible. If we get that right, then the students' minds will be doing the things that we want them to show us they can do. And that's construct validity. So how do we know what the right demands are? I'm not going to talk much about that, but that's about thinking about what it means to be good at whatever the construct is you're trying to measure. What can a good student do better than others? And then this is the the marking bit. What evidence 
do we want, do we need, in order to be able to say, OK, this student is better on this construct than this, than this one? And how are we going to credit this evidence? So, from now on, when I talk about the question, I'm going to be talking about question and mark scheme as the unit of assessment. I don't think it makes sense to think about question writing as separate from mark scheme writing. So, I'm going to be talking about the question and mark scheme together as a whole. One last point before I show you an example. It's every bit as important to elicit evidence of poor achievement as it is to elicit evidence of good achievement. We are aiming for a range of responses from poor to good. We want to discriminate. Right, here's a question. Petra went to a firework display to celebrate the millennium. She saw a rocket exploding in the sky. Look at the diagram. She heard a bang a few seconds later. Explain why. So I'm going to stop talking for a bit and get you to talk to each other, just the person next to you or a couple of people next to you. And I just want you to think about what sorts of responses you think the students came, might have come up with to this task, how you might credit the responses, and will those responses give you the evidence that you would need to be able to judge students' performance on this? It's not hard physics, I hope. <laughs> and would you change the question? if you think that the, ev that the evidence you're going to get isn't right. So just talk to each other for five minutes. Go. <laughs> right, does anybody want to... Does anybody want to comment? There are no right answers, it's not a test. Does anyone want to um, comment? Yes. Explain why. Well, what are you meant to be explaining? There are four points there. Yeah, that's a good point. And, um, in fact, if I'm remembering right, that did lead to some, some of the children explaining why she heard a bang rather than why she heard a bang a few seconds later. I think part, perhaps because they were, they were asked to look at the diagram and then that last bit, she heard a bang, um, there was some focusing on... on um, answers like it makes a sound which is caused by an explosion anything else yeah I think and, and I, I don't like diagrams in exam questions unless they're absolutely essential no um, I agree with that yeah so to celebrate the millennium is just additional information that doesn't help answer the question. Yeah, that's, that, yeah I don't know if everyone heard that, but uh, that was just a, saying that celebrating the millennium doesn't add anything to the information that they need to answer the question. Presumably wanting the fact that light moves faster than sound. Yeah. That's what it's focused yeah. on. But you could answer it with quite sophisticated physics without ever mentioning it. Like, get the mark. For example? We could say that... Um, when the rocket went off, it, it uh, created light at a particular right. point of the spectrum that her eyes were capable of okay. perceiving. Yeah. <laughs> it's also not clear. We, we thought maybe it wasn't clear that it, it actually the, the, the rocket exploding and the bang are actually part of the same event. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to, if you were actually to display it, there'd be other bangs. And, you know, so. Yeah, that's a bit of a symptom of the 
short, simple, short sentences style yeah. that that can sometimes happen. If it needed to say something really explicit, explain why. Mm. She heard the bang later than she saw the explosion. Yeah, so the question could be made perhaps more specific to focus the students in on what actually we're crediting, what, we, what we're trying to get them to do. We also talked about the fact that you have no idea on how many marks you're Yeah, I didn't tell you that. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> because, you know, you, you could, we could have gone on for... Out yeah, here, I, to, I didn't tell you that because I, I was quite interested in how many marks you might think it, it would be worth. Well, it would depend on, on, on you know, yeah. it could be worth one, it could be worth ten. It could, it's in fact worth one, but yeah. <laughs> so, so quite difficult then to decide which, which responses would get the mark, perhaps. What I wanted to really illustrate with that is that you can get a real range of responses to a question that it's quite hard to anticipate in advance and that it has to be a process of thinking about what evidence, what, what responses you're going to get and is that the evidence you want and going back to revisit the question. Have you then communicated this task clearly and then back to the mark scheme, OK, now are we going to get the sorts of responses we want and be able to credit them in the way we want to? Um, so... I like this quote. The trouble with life isn't that there is no answer, it's that there are so many answers. And the students will come up with such a range of, of responses. And sometimes you look at a response and you think, they're just being silly, but actually they very, very rarely are. There's usually a really good reason for, what, for them writing what they've written um, based on what they have interpreted as being the task. <clears throat> so... I'm now going to talk a bit more about that idea of the range of responses um, that the students come up with, um, with a term that, that we use for this, which is the outcome space, the space of all possible answers, responses that students might come up with. So if the outcome space is the full range of likely responses from poor to good responses to a task, um, this is what... I think examiners need to be thinking about when trying to write a mark scheme that ensures that those who are better at the construct will get more marks. Thinking about the evidence um, and what sort of responses they expect to see. So, the outcome space, as I said, ranges from poor to good responses. These are the responses that the markers expect to get to their question. These are the responses that the students actually produce. So we've got the expected responses and then the observed responses. And what we want is this overlap here, expected and observed, to be as large as possible. Because that maximises validity. This zone, the overlap, is where we're in control. This is where the students' minds are doing what we wanted them to be doing and what we expected to be doing. And for responses in this zone, we know what to do with them when we've got the mark scheme in front of us because they've been anticipated in advance. So the mark scheme will tell the markers how to credit them. These ones down here, the observed responses, things the students came up with that we didn't anticipate, those are the ones that, we've, that we're going to have trouble with. So if a mark scheme hasn't anticipated those responses, and it can't anticipate everything... Um, so if, we haven't, if there's a lot that we haven't anticipated, then there are a lot of responses that it will be difficult for the markers to see how to credit when they're applying the mark scheme. 
because in that zone, the students are not behaving as, as, as we expect them to. And we might then need to revise the mark scheme. We might even um, decide that the question wasn't, wasn't, was at fault. So how do we minimise that, then? I'm going to throw one more diagram at you. And this really is a diagram to illustrate the question writing process. So we're starting with thinking about what it means to be good or poor, or the construct. So we're starting with what, what, what do we want to measure? And this is, this is what I use when I do training with, with examiners. Um, so I say, and, and what it actually represents is best practice of examiners. It represents um, what I've found over the years that examiners do when they're doing it well. So thinking about the construct... What does it mean to be good or poor? Then thinking about what evidence you want that will allow you to say this candidate is better than that one. And then with the idea of a task in mind, think about the outcome space that you want to see. Think about the responses that you want that will allow you to have, that will give you the right sort of evidence. And then think about how you're going to credit those responses. That's the mark scheme. And then think about how you're going to word a question to elicit that evidence. So you've got the idea of the task quite early on, but you haven't got the fully written question. Not until you've thought about the responses that you want and how you're going to credit them. Then you look at the wording of the question and then you go back to look at whether that's going to give you the evidence you want and it's a process of iteration until you're satisfied with the whole with the question and mark scheme as a whole. So this puts mark, mark, the mark scheme marking at the centre of the question writing process, and I think that's really important. So um, I mentioned that, um, that I worked on this project looking at um, a lot of questions and mark schemes, and what we did was we tried to find a way of capturing the best practice in mark scheme writing and capturing the range of practice and classifying it so that we could say to markers, OK, here's what's happening, here's what you're doing when you're doing it really well, and here's what's going slightly wrong, and here's a way to think about how to improve mark schemes when they're not working. So we ended up with a taxonomy of mark schemes. Um, there are different taxonomies for different question types. And I'm going to talk about those. But I'll start with showing you the general taxonomy of the sorts of mark schemes that we saw. So, in general, higher levels are better than lower levels. Sometimes lower levels are adequate. I'll come to that. At the bottom, mark schemes where there was really no help given to the marker in how to assign the marks. Surprisingly common. Um, Better than that, mark schemes where a description of good performance was given. So markers know how to credit good, what's expected in a good answer. And sometimes this is enough. Sometimes it's obvious what a student can or can't answer well enough to get the mark. But sometimes, quite often, markers need a bit more help than this for boundary cases, when they're not sure whether a response should get the credit or not. And that's where level two is better, a description of good performance and poor performance, what would and what would not get credit. 
But the only type of mark scheme that's really guaranteed to give markers all the help they need with unexpected responses, those, those ones that I was showing you in that observed zone that we had not expected, is the level three mark scheme where a principle is given for discriminating better from poorer answers. And I'll show you examples of all of these. But as I said, we had to have different taxonomies for different types of questions. And really, there are three main types that we work with. The unconstrained, the essays and so on. The semi-constrained, so some structured essays moving down to some short answer questions. And then the very constrained, with multiple choice at the extreme um, so it's about, it's classi- they're classified in terms of the amount of constraint that the question puts on the candidate's response. I'm going to start with the very constrained. I'm not going to talk about multiple choice because it's an obvious special case. But I'll start with the very constrained. And these are the questions where, as George Bernard Shaw said, no question is so difficult to answer as that to which the answer is obvious. And here's one. So the answer to this is obvious. A bag contains seven blue, five green and three yellow balls. Work out the probability that when one ball is chosen at random, it is black. Mark scheme, zero, obviously. Um, So I was at the team leader meeting for this um, paper about probably more than ten years ago. Um, And that was the mark scheme. And for those of you who don't know, the mark team leader meeting, some of the responses have been marked, um, a sample has been marked, and the... um, principal examiner and marking team leaders are looking at um, the mark scheme and, and possibly making revisions to it so that um, it can be used as well as possible by the markers. So this is the marks, the, what happened at the team leaders meeting based on seeing some of the students' responses. A list of what to accept, what to give the mark to, and a list of what not to give the mark to. It's not random, there is a principle here. First, it, it doesn't, it's not obviously clear, but in fact, they're accepting anything that's a number and not anything that isn't. It does, the question does say work out the probability. So if you write, it can't be black, you don't get the mark. If you write 0%, you do. So they stopped just short of giving the principle, but they felt that this would help the markers with the actual range of responses that they were going to get. So here is then the, the taxonomy for very constrained questions. At the bottom, the, the no guidance, and sometimes this is a model answer, and I'll explain that. Better than this, a complete list of right answers, and better than this, a list of right and a list of wrong, i.e. Complete, either complete answers or examples. And as I said before... It's not always necessary to go to the top level. Sometimes these mark schemes are perfectly adequate. But um, the top level mark scheme is one where the markers give a rule or a principle to differentiate. So here's a, an example of a model answer. This is from Business Studies. Complete the following sentence about private sector businesses. The capital of a private business is contributed by, and the mark scheme says, the owner's shareholders. What's difficult now is for markers to decide what to do with real responses. So do they give the mark to somebody who writes investors, financiers, buying shares, people who want to make a profit, 
So the markers have to decide for themselves whether or not those answers get the mark. Now, it might be impossible to write out all the, all the sorts of right answers, that, all the sorts of answers that will get credit. It might take a very, very long time. It might uh, result in a very long mark scheme. That's where the idea of, of trying to think of what's the principle, what is the construct, what are you trying to measure here, what's the key idea that you're going to say, OK, this, you get the mark for that, but not for the other. Um, Right, here's a level one mark scheme from geography. So they're shown a photograph and they're told the location from which photograph B was taken is shown in figure A, which direction was the camera pointing. And the mark scheme says you get a mark for south or southwest or south-southwest or for writing it in symbols and that's it. So that's a complete list of right answers. And that might be absolutely fine. You might get somebody saying it's pointing towards the river. You might say, OK, that's fine, geography examiners, can, we can trust the markers, they can, they, they can decide that's not what we mean by direction in geography, or you might decide you want to be a bit more clear and say which compass direction. Anyway, it's, um, sometimes this is, this is absolutely fine, but sometimes it's risky. Here's one that gives a list of right and a list of wrong, so a list of what to accept and what not to accept. So... They're making a wooden. They're told about a wooden frame in D and T, and they have to name two permanent joints that can be used for the corner. So they're told. Markers are told. You can give the mark for any of these. And again, you might think, okay, that's um, that's fine. They're professional markers. You know, D and T markers. They know what's expected in D and T, so um, they should be able to decide quite happily, what should and shouldn't get the mark. However, there might be issues around the borderline. So, for example, glue and screw gets a mark. Does glue on its own get a mark? Does screw on its own get a mark? So the, the, the examiners have decided to put in, do not accept just glue or screw, so that it's clear to the markers what gets the mark and what doesn't. So this sort of scheme where you have right answers and wrong answers helps markers with the, board, the borderline. For, helps them with responses that they might be tempted to give the mark to, but might not be, be quite right. OK, at the top level, this is a, an ancient chemistry example. It's not from the project that I've, that I've been talking about, but um, it's quite a useful example of a very constrained question with a mark scheme that has a, a principle and a rule. So they have to draw a structural formula for octane and there are loads of possible ways of drawing it. But don't ask me about them because I don't understand any of them. Um, but rather than list all of those or try to list all of those, the examiners wrote a principle for marking that. It's only, it's only one mark. So they said the structure has to be correctly drawn with no bonds missing between carbon atoms. So that's the important bit. If they've got bonds missing between carbon atoms, they don't get the mark. They're allowed one missing carbon to hydrogen bond, and they're allowed one hydrogen missing, and they'll still get the mark. But any missing carbon bonds, they don't get the mark. So that's the, that's the principle, and that gets round all the different possible ways of drawing this. And it's a principle that the markers should be able to use to judge pretty much any response that they might see to that, to that question, even one that they haven't anticipated.
Okay, I'm going to move on to talk about the semi-constrained question, but if, questions, but if anybody wants to stop me now and ask anything, I'll pause for a moment. That assumes the marks of understanding the subject, isn't it? Yes. You're using the principle. Yes. Can we assume that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have been so far assuming that the markers do have an understanding of the subject for these kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, for this one here, it's, it, if you omitted the allow one missing carbon hydrogen bond and so on, you'd basically be saying if it's correctly drawn given the mark, which isn't very different from no guidance at all. No, it isn't very different. It, correctly drawn. And in fact, I've got an example that's almost exactly like that. Here's one from Design and Technology. They've, um, they've got to make a trailer. Or they, sorry, they, they, they've got a, they're talking about a trailer that's being made, a, a toy trailer out of acrylic, and it's got one end fixed and the other end has to open and close. And the mark scheme is just suitable drawing. So that's really no guidance at all, just suitable drawing. And the examiners have to decide what is suitable. Um, the difference, I think... is that they've stated here what the principle is, what they mean by correctly drawn. They mean no bonds missing between carbon atoms. So that's the, that's the principle. Well, the other thing is you could, you could draw a structure with no bonds missing between carbon atoms that could still be rubbish. Oh, I see. OK. Um, <laughs> and it just seems like the level three could always become the level zero. Yeah. If you, if you, OK. If you're not careful. OK. The way to get around that is to have examples, I think. And... In fact, really, really good mark schemes will, can have a model answer, some example answers, and the key idea, the principle. So there's nothing wrong with combining those. And, and so perhaps in this case, a couple of examples and the principle would have been better. Yeah, does that answer your, your point? Yeah, okay. Question was question about how much do these markers know? Are they specialists at all? I mean, if they don't know anything about chemistry, then they can't really mark it. No. Well, I'm hoping that they're not marking if they don't well, know about I the don't subject. Know. I'm from a country where we don't do this. <laughs> mark? Do you want to come back on? No, well, I just, I, it, it then determines how you employ markers, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's something to take account of. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I yeah, I. Someone they just in the summer they just employ a bunch of sixteen-year-olds to come. Yeah, I, I don't think so for this type of question. But well, I, well, yeah. um, with these sort of skills for life, for example, is um, we have a team of markers who aren't specialists, but um, they are. They do have um, a marking quality coordinator who oversees the marking and who um, has a meeting with the assessment manager. Right. Okay. So, so there is. So effectively, you've got non-specialist about making sure that the mark scheme and the question and the relationship between those two is also related to the skills and the ability of the marker. <coughs> making sure that that's appropriate and direct. Yes, okay. Yes, thank you. Why is this a very 
important question because very often we've got people who are teaching a subject but whose background is something else. Mm. And they've been asked maybe by the director to, okay, you can do maths, I will teach IT. They might have a certain level of skill, but they might not necessarily have all the skills necessary to mark unexpected answers. Mm. So sometimes we say a combination of Ideally, a degree and teaching experience is what we want for the market. Right. But we can't always ensure it. No. We have enough. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right, I'll move on and talk about the semi constrained ones because they're even more difficult to mark. These are probably the commonest type of task in our school exams. Typically, one to six marks, often part of a larger structured question. And because they fall in the middle between the very constrained and the unconstrained, they tend to be marked both for correctness and for quality. So it's all about thinking about whether an answer gives enough evidence of goodness, being good at the, at the construct. Is the answer of good enough quality? Does it get full marks? Does it get partial credit? And so on. So these are tricky to mark, to write mark schemes for. So, again, at the bottom, the, the no guidance, sometimes a model answer. Better than this usually is, almost always, is a list of good answers. And sometimes it will be a complete list and sometimes it will be examples. Then a list of good and poor. And then at the top, again, a rule or a principle. So I've shown you this example already where the mark scheme for D&T basically just says a suitable drawing and doesn't really give any guidance to the markers on what is meant by suitable. That's completely up to, to the markers there to, to have their own interpretation of what suitable is. Here's another one. What is a quality circle? I've called this semi-constrained because it's asking for a description, even though it's only one mark. Um, and the mark scheme gives a model answer. A quality circle is a group of employees that meets to identify quality problems, thinks of solutions and makes recommendations. So how much of that is actually needed to get the mark? That's what the markers have to decide when they get a real response. So if they get a group who identifies quality problems, is that enough of, of the model answer to get the mark? So a lot is left up to interpretation there. Okay, here's one of my favourites. Um, from GCSE Geography. This valley has been created by a glacier which has changed the shape of the land by a process known as glacial abrasion. Explain in detail how this process works for four marks. And this is a points mark scheme. There are nine points here. But um, there's a maximum of four to get full marks. So, will any four do? Here's a response with four of the points in it. Gravity makes the glacier move slowly and over time it smooths the surface. So that's got four of the points that were listed in the mark scheme. But does that explain glacial abrasion? I think it doesn't. It's got nothing about the essential mechanism of scraping the ground by um, the, the moving ice scraping the ground. So the problem with a points mark scheme is that it doesn't differentiate the importance of different points. Every point is treated as equal in value. 
Um, there's no reward for selecting the most important points. And in fact, it pays to mention everything you can think of. So the problem with the point scheme is it can't guarantee that a student whose understanding is better will get more marks. So I want to stop again now for a few minutes because this is a common issue and there's no simple answer to this. So I want you to just think, just talk to each other again about whether you've come across this kind of issue, how you might deal with it, how you might <coughs> write a different sort of mark scheme for this and what you, what you, might, you might do, just for a couple of minutes again. Anybody want to comment on comment on this? Those are words, they're not explanations. Those are just a single statement words. So if you just wrote those words down, it's not really explaining the process. So you've got mm. a, a rather different approach to the mark scheme. And like what? Um, you could use sort of level smart yeah. schemes with the you know gallery sensor. Or yeah. the other possibility is that you identify which are the most important mm. things, so the, the rocks in the base of the glacier moving and scratching away, and so you must have that bit in to get, and then yeah. all the marks can be relevant. Yeah, ways. I think both of those those are, are, um, are what is, is, is sometimes done with, with this kind of thing, either to levels mark it or to have, yeah, these are the key points, and you're not going to get full marks if you haven't got the key, the key points. Um, I'm going to show you a few examples of level mark schemes when I get onto the unconstrained. Is, is that all right? We do it then, and then you'll, you'll see what, what I mean. Yeah. This looks like a clear indication of writing the question before the mark scheme. Yeah. It almost certainly is, yeah. As most of the marks. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think... Presumably, glacial abrasion is a, a technical geographical term that people are supposed to understand what it means and how it works. Yeah. So what? Because because it, it crossed my mind to wonder whether you would rewrite the question, but I don't know if, if you wanted an explanation of how glacial abrasion works. How would you? Yeah. Rewrite how would you? The question? No. And the, I mean, explain questions are one of the most difficult, really, to to write and and to mark, if if not the most difficult. How do you get the students to write what the level of the depth of explanation that you want? How do you yeah, communicate that, that to them? Scene, and how somebody do you... said the mark scene, the list of points looks like a description. Yeah. Now, what's yeah. the difference between a description that says the ice moves and it's got rocks in it mm. and they change, they, mm. you know, smooth or regret or brave or you know? Why is that? Where, at what point does it become an explanation? Yeah, it's a, it's a thorny problem. It really is. Yeah, I was thinking you could have maybe a table, a breakdown of the different stages, so uh-huh. the students got to hit each stage to get, you know, to accrue the marks. Right, right, and and I mean a level smart scheme will um will do that. We'll put students into a, a a level one if they've got certain amount, a level two if they've got more, and that will be banded. So one to three marks for level one. Or I was just thinking yeah. in terms of the format on the question paper. Oh, on the so question paper. A table, and they have to write down next to each stage. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. For the marker, that would be clearer for them to identify. Yeah. Rather than unpicking sort of long sentences where you yeah. could be misinterpreted. Mm. And that would change the, the cognitive processes. That's you might be changing the construct. Mm. There. Yeah, you could you could be, but it's it's but it's another that issue. Of yeah. How much do you have to compromise the yeah. question for the mark scheme to work? That's it. 
Yeah. Anything else? Okay, let's move on. So that was an example of an approach, a level one approach, a list of, list of good responses. Um, I'll just show you... Oh, yeah, the, so this is really what the problem is here. Not everything that can be counted counts, and that's the problem with point smart schemes. So here is one that gives... Um, again, I this time asked for a description, how a handle in DT could be made um, more comfortable to hold... They get the mark for talking about rounding off the edges. They don't get the mark for any additions to it afterwards, like padding, fabric, foam, etc. So that's giving what they get, would get credit for and what they wouldn't. So again, trying to help with the borderline responses. Um, I'll show you a couple of level three mark schemes for um, these sorts of questions where there's a principle, where the examiners have tried to give a principle or a rule. So this question they're asked to state the meaning of the term deforestation but they're given two marks for this and the mark scheme gives one mark for an incomplete definition cutting down a tree or removing trees and two marks for a full definition and it gives the key idea here some reference to scale for example the complete clearance of a forest so that's trying to give what is the principle what is the key idea here that gets them full marks and this one again Calais has a warmer winter and a cooler summer than Rocklaw. Explain why. And the mark scheme says, we're looking for answers related to the distance from the sea. A clear distinction between land and sea heating is needed for the full mark. So they're trying to give the principle um, so it's clear um, what the point of the question is, what the essential element of geography is that they're trying to, that they're trying to test here. And this approach seems to be the best guarantee that markers will keep the construct in mind when they're marking. Uh, right, this, this next example is one that um, was sent to us after we first talked to examiners about this work about two years ago. Um, a business studies examiner sent us um, this example of a mark scheme. And this illustrates a point that was made earlier about perhaps combining elements of these different types of mark schemes to get a really useful mark scheme. So his question was, using an example, explain the meaning of the term public sector. And this is his mark scheme. We've broken it up into A to F, but other than that, it's as he wrote it. So he started with a sort of model answer. The public sector refers to organisations owned, financed and controlled by the state on behalf of the general public at last. So he started with a model answer, but then he said, OK, the key idea is the focus of the answer needs to be on the idea of control and the state or government. So that's the key idea. Then he gave some example good responses. So he could refer to schools, health, the police, and so on. And then a discussion about the boundary. The blurred edges of the modern public sector activity means we need to be fairly flexible with the way we reward the examples given. Some might, for example, refer to the post office. And then a scoring rule, three marks, up to three marks for an appropriate definition, a further mark for the example... And then back to the principle, back to the key idea. Distinguish between the mark range by looking for a reference to the element of control, finance and ownership. So that's just a a real example that somebody came up with 
when thinking about the types of Marx schemes and how to perhaps combine these ideas to have a Marx scheme that he thought was going to communicate most clearly to his markers. And his markers didn't like it. There was too much in there. <laughs> so there's, a, there's an obvious balance, balance here to strike. Right, so the last sort of types of questions I'm going to talk about are the unconstrained questions. So these are the ones where not everything that counts can be counted. So instead of counting, instead of points marking, now we're judging. We're judging levels of quality in a response. So we're talking about essays um, and and that that kind of unconstrained response. So here's the taxonomy. The model answer, which is no help at all to to the markers... And then various types of levels mark schemes. Um, and I'll show you examples of these. But um, in general, they're, they're rating scales that are used to turn judgments into marks. And they vary in how much they relate to gen- generic aspects of, of the response or how much they relate to specific aspects of the, of the, of the task. Um, so holistic implicit levels, that refers to the kind of best fit scheme. So this is where the markers are really looking at various components of quality and they're trying to say, OK, this response best fits this, this marking band. More useful, we think, than, than this is, um, is trying to separate out the components of quality that you're looking for into multiple levels. But sometimes this is done implicitly without telling the markers how to weight the different things. And sometimes it's done explicitly with explicit weightings for, for example, understanding and communication. And at the top of this, um, this type of mark scheme is what we ended up calling specific trait interpretation. So this is a mark scheme about how good a response is in terms of the overall trait, the overall construct that the exam is measuring. So it's, so it's about crediting the student for their performance in terms of specific application of the gi- generic criteria. But I'll, I'll show you examples because it's not very clear without examples. So we'll start with the model answer. This is a very old example. You don't really get this kind of thing anymore, I don't think. But this is from 1995, and it was an essay question, how convincing are the arguments in favour of granting independence to the Bank of England? And here are a couple of extracts from the Mark Scheme. The Mark Scheme was a perfect answer to the question, in the opinion of the question setter. Um, It was almost a thousand words long. And very, very detailed. A level of detail that it was unreasonable to expect from any A-level student. Um, And doesn't give any help to markers on how to deal with real responses. What do they do with the real response? How do they compare it with a model answer? But not only that, perhaps worse than that, is a model answer is entirely specific to the question asked in an essay question, with no generic quality features. So it's difficult to see how the scores obtained on that particular question can generalise to other possible questions. And that is a threat, a serious threat to validity. We're assessing the construct. We're not assessing how good they are at this particular question. So the model answer then, very little help to the, to the markers. And interestingly, they were supposed to have 
referred to things that had happened a month before the exam. So, a little tricky. Here is then an example of the next sort of, um, that I mentioned, the holistic implicit levels, or the best fit scheme. So, markers are told a level one answer gets one to two marks and it applies the case study reasonably well, it gives a simple description or explanation, communicates with brief statements. A level two does all of this a little bit better and so on up to a level four, which is seven to eight marks. So the examiners have to make an overall assessment of the student's complete performance and try to fit it to one of these. But let's just look at level two. How many different things they're looking for? Application, description, explanation, structure in the communication, specialist terms, coherence, spelling, punctuation and grammar. So that's, I don't know, seven, six? I didn't count. Quite a lot of um, different qualities that the examiners are looking for. So what do they do with the response that is good at using specialist terms but hasn't got very good spelling? Or one that has good application of the case study but poor sentence coherence? So this sort of implicitness can be a source of, of unreliability in the marking and threat, therefore threaten validity. Um, this sort of best fit approach is okay, for example, in the national curriculum where you're judging, uh, where you're trying to um, classify a child as a whole as um, fitting into a, certain, a one best fit category. But for a single question in an exam, it's very rarely appropriate. So here's um, multiple levels when they've tried to, the examiners have tried to split the levels into different um, Components. So this is a question about the formation of a corrie and its lake. So it's about um, how um, glaciers erode a mountain peak, forming a scooped-out valley, which holds water. And this is the mark scheme. So there are two dimensions now. There's explanation and communication. There are often two or maybe three dimensions, rarely more than three. So the markers can look at... Answers, uh, answers in terms of explanation and in terms of communication. But what they're not told is how much weight to give to either of these. So there's still an issue with a response that's, for example, just, just in level three for explanation, but in terms of communication doesn't quite hit level two. What do you do? Do you give that response a level two overall? So better than this is to give some explicit weighting to the levels. This is a, it doesn't really matter what the question is. It's about penetration pricing in business studies. This is the mark scheme. So now they've got two um, dimensions. They've got assessment objective of three and assessment objective four. And they're now told how to weight them. So there's no issue of, of, of weighting here. They're two separate scales, four marks. For each. So in this case, equal weighting. Often you get two dimensions like understanding and communication, and understanding is given more weight than communication. But in this case, it's equal weighting. So this provides a procedural solution to the problem of how to mark those responses that excel in one area and not in another. And in general, this is a really good type of mark scheme. But we did come across mark schemes that we thought were even better than these. And these are what we call specific trait interpretation. These are marks 
uh, Marx schemes that try to describe the general construct as it is realised in the particular task. So we want the quality of an answer to be a direct indicator of how well the student can do at the subject as a whole. And so the assessment scale represents the overall construct and how it is realised in the specific task. So this is a question about cliff recession in coastal areas and they had to choose a case study and explain the causes of effects of, and effects of cliff recession in this area. And this is the mark scheme. So this mark scheme is fully specific to do with this task, but it describes how evidence of the generic qualities that we're trying to measure can be seen in the responses to the specific task. So descriptive comments about causes and or effects of cliff recession. To reach level three, an explanation of causes and effects well linked to a case study. So with this sort of mark scheme, you can, what you can do is you can have students fully aware of what the generic criteria are, and that's really useful and important, that the students understand what they're being assessed on, what is a good answer. So the, students, the generic criteria can be entirely open, specific criteria for the task or not. So, um, so what this does is at each level, it really describes the essence of a response with that amount of quality on this task. So I just really want to finish now with putting up this general taxonomy again and just saying um, really what our aim was in developing this taxonomy. It was really to clarify existing practice um, to, to somehow try to systematise best practice and say to people, OK, here's what you're doing really well um, and here's some sort of rationale for improving what's, what's, what's not working. And the markers that we consulted during the development and since its development did feel that it did capture the range of practice um, and gave them some principles that they could use to, to improve the mark schemes that were, that were inadequate. So, but what I want to say is that we're trying to improve mark schemes in order to minimise those threats to validity. So we're doing this with having principles for dealing with those boundary responses, for differentiating right from wrong answers, for differentiating answers um, better from poorer... That show, sorry, differentiating answers that show better rather than poorer understanding of the construct and describing how the construct applies in the specific tasks. So that was our aim. And there's the bucket of water. Have we got enough to put out the fire? And is it still good enough to drink? Well, I think that's a very good point to, to round up on. If you've got any more questions that you really want to discuss with Aisha, I'm sure she'd be happy to, uh, to talk to you. But can I just thank you very much, all of you, for participating, but particularly Aisha for leading this today. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.